Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 163 for October 4th, 2009. This week we continue taking a look at Windows 7. Let's call this one getting there from where you are. Unless you're a Mac or Linux user, the next desktop computer you buy will have Windows 7 on it. And maybe you'd like to upgrade your current computer to Windows 7. As I've mentioned a time, or maybe 10, I consider this upgrade to be mandatory for Vista users. Less so, perhaps, for XP users. If you're thinking about upgrading an existing computer, I have some suggestions for things that you should do or think about doing before you start the process. Windows 7 runs far more efficiently than Vista did. In most cases, it competes with XP in terms of startup, shutdown, and program load times. If your computer was able to run Vista, it will almost certainly be able to run Windows 7. And if your computer was able to run Windows XP, it probably will be able to run Windows 7. You should plan on confirming that your video subsystem has enough power for Arrow, though. That could be one stumbling block. In fact, it's a good idea to take your computer to the Windows 7 Upgrade Advisor. It's still a beta application at this time, so you'll want to start on the Microsoft website to read about it, then download the application. You'll find a link to the Upgrade Advisor on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Even on a slow connection, it shouldn't take more than 15 minutes to download. Around October 22nd, the Advisor will stop being referred to as Beta. The Advisor will tell you whether your system meets hardware requirements, which it probably will. More important, it will list any known compatibility problems. The key word in that sentence is known. You can still encounter problems that haven't yet been discovered. Windows 7 can be installed as an in-place upgrade on Vista computers. XP users will need to use the custom installation option, which will involve reinstalling all of your applications. Alternatively, you can keep the Windows XP installation and install Windows 7 to dual boot with XP. You'll still have to reinstall all of your applications under Windows 7, though. A clean installation will create a Windows.old directory, and that directory contains the Windows folder and other critical files from documents and settings and from program files. Data files should survive the process, but only a fool would proceed without having a full and verified backup. If you have to do a custom install, consider dual booting. I already mentioned that, but I mentioned it in relation to Windows XP. And there couldn't be a better time to set up your computer as a dual boot machine with Ubuntu Linux. Ubuntu is the Linux distribution that I recommend to most people because it's easy to install and it plays very well with Windows. If you have more than one hard drive, Linux can boot from any drive. Visit the Ubuntu website to read about the process. Let's face it, dual boot may sound intimidating, but Ubuntu has made the process about as easy as it can be made. 
Another consideration before you start is backup. If you think you have a full and verified backup, check to be sure. The time to find out about any shortcomings is now, not later. As much as I like the online backup systems such as Carbonite, I would supplement that with a local backup to, oh, for example, a removable USB hard drive. It's not that this is a better solution than Carbonite, but restoring data is much faster if you have the files on a local hard drive, and it's another level of insurance. If you're using a third-party backup solution such as that from Acronis, you'll need to have the installation media available. And if you're using the Windows XP backup utility, you're going to need to download a special restore application from Microsoft. The file format changes under Windows 7. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find a link to a Microsoft utility that was designed for moving files from XP to Vista. At this moment, it isn't yet certified for Windows 7, but it certainly will be at some point very soon. To be absolutely certain that all of my data survives, I typically create yet another copy of the really important files on yet another hard drive. I don't like losing data. Because you need to reinstall all of your applications, now would be the time to make sure that you can find all of the CDs and DVDs that you need. I have a special downloads directory where all of my downloaded applications are stored. I number all CDs and DVDs, store them in devices made for the disks, and record the installation keys in an access data file. I need to have that available immediately. If you have applications that must be transferred, for example, many Adobe applications, be sure to deactivate them before you install Windows 7. Sure, you can always contact customer support and explain the situation. Oh, I had to reinstall, I forgot, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's a lot faster and easier if you just take the appropriate steps yourself in advance of the upgrade. Another good site to visit before you make the switch is Microsoft Windows 7 How-To section on the Microsoft website. And guess what? There's a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. I tend not to be intimidated by operating system changes, so I installed the Windows 7 release candidate without the benefit of this site. But if change distresses you or bothers you even just a little, be sure to visit this area before you perform the installation. I've described the installation process elsewhere, so I won't do that today. Just follow the instructions and you'll be fine. They are clear, and the process is by far the easiest Microsoft has ever created. What does buying a car have to do with technology? Buying a car is always fraught with peril because misinformation and disinformation abound. The Internet makes the process of buying a car both easier and harder. It's easier because so much information is available. It's harder for exactly the same reason. For the past 13 years, I've been driving a Ford Explorer. I purchased it after it had been returned at the end of a two-year lease. I presume it provided the original driver good service, and for 13 years it provided very good service for me. But concerns about the price of fuel and the effects of burning gasoline on global warming caused me to look for something a little more fuel-efficient. Now, on the federal government's cash-for-clunkers program, cars, yeah, that was also a factor. 
So I knew I wanted a new car, but which one? More than 200 make-model combinations are available, and that's just the start. There's all the optional equipment to consider, the trade or salvage value of the existing vehicle, the financing options. Along the line, you might want to consider the tires required by your new vehicle, reviews by Consumer Reports, and information from owners of the vehicles that you're considering. Consumer Reports is a great resource when you're looking for a car, new or used. Minimal information is available online for free, so you'll be better served by paying for a print or online subscription. But that's not all. The Internet makes library books available to you, too. I borrowed two useful books from the Worthington Library, one called The Car Buyer's Bible, written by Robin Siegel, who worked in a dealership to gain information for her small 120-page book, and another called Don't Get Taken Every Time. That's a 450-page monster by Raymond Sutton. He works with Ralph Nader. Sutton's book is far more negative, but it contains a lot of useful information. I had narrowed the search down to two cars from Honda and two from Toyota. For Toyota, the contenders were the Prius and the Camry Hybrid. For Honda, the contenders were the Fit and the Insight. The only non-hybrid car on the list is the Fit. Although it had been my early favorite, my wife and I quickly ruled out the Insight because of its limited back seat room and the aerodynamic but hard-to-use rear window. We also ruled out the Camry Hybrid, despite the fact that we both loved the car because of its price. So, that left the Prius and the Fit. The Prius gets 50 miles per gallon of gas compared to the Fit's 27, and that would save several thousand dollars in fuel over 10 years. But the batteries will eventually need to be replaced, and the cost of doing that will be several thousand dollars. Also worth consideration is the environmental cost of disposing of the batteries, and the fact that the Prius would cost at least $3,000 more than the Fit. So I bought the Fit, and after a month of driving, I'm averaging 33 miles a gallon, not the 27 that was advertised. So we were already leaning toward the Fit. I checked the bottom line price from Consumer Reports and figured a reasonable dealership profit, so I now had a price that I was aiming for. You can imagine how surprised I was when the dealership's price quotation was lower than the best price I expected based on the Consumer Reports numbers. Okay, so it's near the end of the model year, and the cars I'm looking at, based on the serial number part of the VIN, appeared to have been on the lot for at least six months. The salesman later confirmed that it had been in stock since January. So then, and this is where the Internet becomes very useful, I cast a wider net. I asked a dealership in Marysville, and I asked a dealership in Dayton to provide their best prices. The Dayton dealership beat the Columbus dealership's price by nearly $500. Now, I don't want to drive to Dayton to get a car. That's a 60-mile trip. But I presented the Dayton price to the Columbus dealership, and after several minutes, the sales manager said that he would accept the deal but only, as I found out the next day, if they could get the financing part of the deal. Okay, beat my credit union's rate, and you've got a deal. That's what I said, and that's what they did. They beat it by one one-hundredth of a percentage point. <laughs> I probably should have held out for a full percentage point, maybe two. Dealerships tend to buy these loans at very low rates. 
And here's another way the Internet helps. The car I was looking at said it came with P185-55R-1683H tires. What the heck does that mean? Well, I found an answer on Wikipedia. P, as I kind of figured, meant it was a passenger vehicle tire. 185, that's the width of the tire in millimeters. 55 is the aspect ratio of the tire. The smaller number, the shorter the tire. R indicated radial, 16 indicated 16-inch rims, 83 was the load index, which means, in this case, 1,074 pounds per tire, and H was the speed rating, one I will probably never reach, 130 miles an hour. But, at least now, I know. In short circuits, the significance of insignificance. These days, we give hardly a second thought to a system that allows me to buy a lens from a camera store in Manhattan on a long weekend during the time the store is actually closed, Friday afternoon until Tuesday morning. The store was closed for Yom Kippur. Allow them to ship it, allow me to follow it across the country, and allow me to receive it on Thursday. B&H Photo and Video packaged the lens on Tuesday and advised UPS at 1.51 p.m. that it would be ready for pickup. The store ships from its warehouse in Maspeth, which is part of Queens, New York. UPS picked it up at 6.17 p.m., combined it with other packages that left Maspeth at 12.24 a.m. on Wednesday. The package arrived at a regional center in Parsippany, New Jersey, a little over an hour later, and left there at 3 a.m. for Columbus. The package arrived in Columbus at 1.41 p.m. on Wednesday. It was delivered to my office on Thursday morning. Not only was the journey not anything out of the ordinary... But the fact that I could check the UPS website to watch the package's progress across the country is also apparently not worthy of any particular mention. Step back in time to a not-too-distant past, let's say, oh, 1980. You're looking at popular photography, and you'd like to buy a lens from a New York camera store. You call on Saturday, you find they're closed. So you call on Sunday, and you wait on hold for 20 minutes, or 30 minutes, or more. Eventually, you place the order. The store says they'll ship the goods on Monday. The following Friday, you still have no lens. You call, but they've already closed. You try again on Saturday. They are, of course, closed. You try on Sunday. You find that the lens wasn't actually in stock, although the clerk thought that it was, based on the paperwork he had, and it wasn't shipped until Friday. But now you should have it by the following Thursday. That's the way things were not all that long ago. Were it not for computers and the Internet, none of what we enjoy today would be even thinkable, much less possible. Google Wave. It's part email, part instant messaging, part social networking. It's now available to about 100,000 developers and users. Wave tries to be everything to everyone by combining email, video, maps, photos, text messages, and audio. Chances are it'll take you a little while to wrap your mind around that concept. Wave wants to allow developers to create applications that run on Wave, and Google execs have called it magical and unbelievable. There are similarities to Google Voice in that email, instant messages, and phone calls are all included in the same interface. But now users could run a conference call that might include participants on cell phones, plain old telephone service lines, or POTS, 
and voice over Internet protocol users. Google has demonstrated the system with collaborators at various locations. Collaboration in real time is what Wachatu CEO Roni Zaram calls a natural evolution of how people use the Internet. One potential problem is that Wave does not play well with Microsoft's Internet Explorer because IE doesn't use the technology that Google uses in its own browser, Chrome. Wave does run properly, though, under Apple's Safari 4 browser, Mozilla's Firefox 3.5 browser, and, of course, Google's own Chrome browser. It's clear that Google and Microsoft are on a collision course. Wave simply accelerates the two opposing forces. The expected crash is going to be amazing. Microsoft calls it a limited technical preview, but the web-based version of the Office Suite is now in use by a limited number of people. It's available through the Windows Live SkyDrive storage portal. Taking a page from Google's playbook, Microsoft makes the suite available by invitation only. Microsoft Office web apps, Word, Excel, and PowerPoint, are part of Office 2010. Initially, program functions will be limited. Microsoft says commercial users that buy volume Office licenses will be given access to Office web apps for free. That would be around 90 million customers, and there are also about 400 million Windows Live users. Office Web Apps Program Manager Nick Simmons says the test will increase between now and next year's launch to make the suite available to more Windows Live users. The Web Apps version of the Office applications are designed for use in a network environment where bandwidth is limited. And for this reason, features that require a lot of bandwidth are not supported. But because they're designed for use on the web, the applications will include features not available on the desktop version of the suite. For example, the ability to embed tags in documents and then post them to blogs. The next year or two is going to be pretty interesting as far as desktop applications go. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.